with worship. That worship is always in the top five things that they struggle with. They, they struggle with it being kind of lackluster, kind of almost inert or confused. We also struggle with having hearts that are just inclined to worship other things and to be devoted to things of secondary nature. We know it, but our hearts are still kind of drawn to those things. And what we have here, Jesus has given us kind of a picture of what devotion ought to be. It's it's a beautiful picture of what is extravagant devotion. Now, you know, when Jesus brings a, a model like this to us, it can lead us to a degree of discouragement because we're not like that. But but I would encourage you to maybe look differently at this woman. Look at it like um, a model that we can profit by. Maybe hold ourselves against that we might learn from her, that she might instruct us, as it were. You know where we are now in Matthew, we've Jesus says it in that first verse when he had finished all these sayings. So Matthew is giving us a marker here. Here's a marker. Jesus finished his last discourse at the end of chapter 25. So so we're in a new section in Matthew. Jesus has told us about his kingdom. It's coming back in power. He's told us about an interval of time. He's warned us to make use of the time, to be ready to steward our gifts. He's said all these things over the past few chapters, but now it's changed. He's finished those things. And if you can kind of see the camera kind of pull back, you know, the crowds kind of fade in view, and now he speaks to his disciples about his own death. This is a major change. This is what theologians call the passion of Jesus, when he lays down his life to die. He's instructing his disciples in 26-27, that he has come to fulfill the purpose that God had for him. The purpose from the beginning of the world to lay down his life, to die for us. And and I I hope that you listen with with kind of a reverence and an affection for what Jesus is going to reveal about himself. I'm going to look at just verse 2 for a minute and, and kind of try to unravel a little bit of all that Jesus is saying to us. He is revealing what he will do and why he's going to do it. And then you see through the rest of the passage up through 13, these different responses that people have, the the religious leaders, the disciples. And then we have this unnamed woman, doesn't even have a name, who will be instructing us in this. So we're going to look at how Jesus reveals himself in the second verse and then how we respond in various means and measures. So so the first thing we see is how Jesus reveals himself. Now notice in verse 2 he says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming. Now Jesus, in revealing himself, he reveals a a number of things about himself. The first thing he reveals is that he is the new Exodus. Now that may sound strange to you, but give me a minute to explain it. He's kind of a new Passover, if you will. Now, you notice that he says in two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered over to be crucified. Now, this is really the fourth time he's mentioned he's going to die. So this isn't new. What's new is he's relating it to the Passover. Now, why is this important? I mean, why is it significant that he's tying it together, his death and the Passover? Well, you know the story of the Passover back in the book of Exodus, you know, how the people of Israel were enslaved to Egypt. They were enslaved, they were bound. And so God, in faithfulness to the covenant that he made to Abraham, 
sent Moses and Aaron, his brother, to go to go bring them and exit them out. Hence the name Exodus. And so the miracles and judgments fell upon Egypt, if you remember. Just judgment after judgment. And what God was doing was he's revealing himself to a people that had long forgotten about him. This is the greatness of God. Now you know in Egyptian, in Egyptian pagan theology that the, the Pharaoh was divine, or part divine. And so now there's a greater God coming in, showing judgments. Well, the last judgment was the taking of every firstborn. That was the last judgment that God was going to bring. And so Moses informed the people that God will provide a way for his people. Those who put the blood of a sacrificed perfect lamb on the doorpost and the lentil, that God, instead of taking their firstborn, because of the blood of a lamb, he will pass over that door, hence the name Passover. And he will pass over. And the firstborn will not be required because a lamb met the payment. The lamb was instead of the firstborn. The lamb was the substitute. And so all those with blood, God passes over. No judgment falls. Mercy is given. Those without the blood, judgment fell, and life was taken. And this final judgment broke the back of Pharaoh, and Moses led the people out in the exodus from Egypt to become a people for God. That was the whole design. God freeing a people so that they would worship and serve him alone with joy. So when Jesus relates his death to the Passover, he's saying he's the new Passover lamb, that he's the lamb of God who will come to take away the sins of many people. And faith in Christ, God passes over our sin because Jesus has died in our stead. He's died as our substitute. That's what Jesus is doing. It's a huge piece of biblical theology here. That whole land, that whole scene, the Passover, they celebrated every year for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It all pointed to Jesus. And now faith in Christ leads us out of sin and into the people of God. That we now are the people of God designed to worship and enjoy God forever. He's the Passover lamb, leading a second exodus. That's what he's telling us here. This is what he's come to do. But not just that. Look with me when he says, the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. He's revealing more about what he's doing. The Son of Man, as many of you know, because we've hit it a half a dozen times in this gospel, that is a name of power. I mean, that's a power name. That was from Daniel 7. You see this scene, right? You see kind of the, the curtains of heaven are pulled back, and there's God named the Ancient of Days. And it says, one like a son of man goes to God, and God gives him this kingdom that's eternal. And, it, and in more, it, it's just an incredible kingdom that will never be challenged or threatened. And this son of man will receive glory and honor. He's getting all that God is. And, so, and you, you remember a couple of weeks back in chapter 24, Jesus references himself as the Son of Man who will come back in glory and power. That makes sense to us. But notice what he does. Jesus connects it to a crucifixion. This glory and power of the Son of Man is now in the same sentence with, but he's going to be crucified. Well, that, that should cause us to just stop. That makes sense. The powerful don't fall. The strong don't trip. 
But here the Son of Man will be crucified. Why? What, what sense could this be? I mean, what would that achieve? Well, remember, back in Deuteronomy, we're told the cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. Well, Paul in Galatians 3.13 picks that up for Jesus. That Jesus being crucified, there's a hundred ways to kill him. Why crucifixion? Well, because the one who is hanging on a tree and is cursed is the mark of a man cursed of God. So he removes the curse from us by bearing the curse of God. So the curse in Genesis 3, the fall of man, when man and woman and creation were all cursed, and we have the situation that we do now, Jesus has come to remove that curse that we can be uncursed and be adopted, to be loved, to be forgiven, to be drawn to be with God. You know, the whole Bible's talking about this plan of God to redeem all things to himself. This is what Jesus had to do to bring us to be with God forever. You are freed from the curse because he was cursed as evidence in the crucifixion. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was a verbal indication he's bearing the curse of God. But there's one other thing I want you to see in this. You notice in 1 and 2, Jesus is driving the train. He's sovereign. He's not just the new exodus. He's not just the suffering son of man, but he's sovereign in his death. He is driving the train. He's saying how things are going to go down. Matthew records him in direct speech. This isn't like a third-person narrative. Jesus is saying this is what's going to happen. He's predicting his own death. They tried to kill him before. They weren't able to. But now Jesus says, now now I will be delivered up. You notice in verse 3, when the chief priests and the elders begin to hatch their plot, it says, then the chief priests and elders of the people gathered in the palace. It's then that they do it. They didn't do it before because Jesus didn't allow it before. You know, if you notice, they wanted to wait until after the festival. But when did Jesus say it would happen? In two days. And it did, in two days. The timeline followed him, not their plan. Jesus is even sovereign in his own death. He's laying down his life. Nobody killed Jesus. He laid himself down. So this is how Jesus chooses to reveal himself to us. This is how Jesus is showing us himself. This is how Jesus sees himself, that that he is leading a new exodus, that he's the suffering son of man, and that he's sovereign in his own death. Now, how do you view him? I mean, do you believe in this Jesus? A lot of Jesuses out there. A lot of Gospels out there. But how does he see himself, and does it accord with how you see him? Because if you believe in this Jesus, then what you're telling me is you believe that the whole redemptive plan of God rests on Christ. That from the fall of man in the garden, every day of history was marching toward this day. That this is the crowning day of all days. We worry about tribulations and nuclear holidays. Forget all of them. This is the day that history is marching towards. The death of the Son of God. I mean, this was not a plan hatched because things went sideways in the middle of the history of Israel. This was a plan forged in God, carried out by the Son, now applied to us through His Spirit.
that all of God's plan of, of redeeming a people that have gone awry, the whole plan rests on Jesus dying for us through a crucifixion. That's what you must believe. That's part of believing in the gospel message. I need him to die for me. You have to believe that this is, a, this is the whole plan. But not just that. You also, if you believe and see Jesus as he sees himself, you also see that suffering precedes the satisfaction of the resurrection. That the cross precedes the crown. That in this day and age, suffering is not an anomaly. Suffering is not because you did something wrong. You didn't read your Bible. Suffering is part of this age until he comes back to consummate his kingdom. That that startles some of us. We just don't want to think it has to be part of it. But can you imagine the whiplash the disciples had? 24, what are we talking about? Jesus coming back, powerful leader, coming back in glory on the clouds. And he comes back and he's the judge and he separates the sheep and the goats. He goes through two chapters of power Jesus right to 26, second verse. Oh, and he's going to be delivered up to be crucified. I mean, that's a, that's a major shift. But it's teaching us that suffering is part of this life because it was part of his life. It will be redeemed. And let me tell you, the glories that await, that await us, they're not even to be compared with the suffering that we endure now. But it's part of this life. Be a Christian, we believe that. We're not looking for our best life now. We're not looking for the redemption to mean that we never suffer anymore. And that if God loves me, everything's going to go perfect. We're not looking for that now. That will come. That will be ours in full measure, I promise you. But right now, in this life, it's not. It's through trials that we enter the kingdom of God, Paul says. The third thing we see, if you see Jesus as he sees himself, you also see that the cross is central to the gospel. As I said, there's a lot of gospels out there, a lot of things to believe about Jesus. But the cross is central. There is no way around the cross. Paul says this. He says, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, but Christ and him crucified. Is the cross much in your life? Do you preach the gospel to yourself every day? Do you think about the cross? Are you thankful for it? Are you in awe of it? J.C. Rouse said this about the cross. He says, we can never attach too much importance to the atoning death of Christ. It is the leading fact in the word of God on which the eyes of our soul ought to be ever fixed. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. It's the cardinal truth on which the whole system of Christianity hinges. Without it, the gospel is an arch without a keystone. It's a fair building without a foundation. It's a solar system without a sun. It is the master truth of Scripture that Christ died for our sins. Let us return to it daily. Feed our souls daily. Let us never be ashamed. May we say with Paul, be it far from me to boast except in the cross of Christ. So is that true of you? I mean, this is how we discern the genuineness of our faith in the gospel. Is the cross central? Are you thankful for the cross? Do you see it as an absolute necessity? To have happened. Not, hey, it's one way that God showed his love for us. No, 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 no. That doesn't work. We do see his love for it. It's an absolute necessity. 
And, and then the, the fourth thing, if you see Jesus the way he sees himself, then you see that death is not the end. This isn't the end. Thinking the death of Jesus is the end of the gospel is like thinking I'm going to blow on a dandelion and it's the end of the dandelion. I mean, the death of Christ just ignites the gospel. You notice in verse 13, it says, and wherever the gospel is preached, this story will be told about her. What's the implication? Oh, the gospel is going to be preached to the ends of the world. We already saw that in chapter 24, 14. And the gospel will be preached to the end of the world, and then the end will come. The death of Jesus does nothing to stop it. It just ignites it. Explodes to go out. So, do you trust in this Jesus? I'm speaking now, even those of you who have long been in the faith. Do you believe in this? Do you see Jesus in the way he sees himself? Do you believe in how he's revealed himself? Have you trusted in his death as I've explained it? Also as a church, do do we as a church, is this a gravitational pull of what pulls us together as a church? You know, a lot of things pull groups together. We know that. I mean, you have political conservatism. You have educational philosophies. This is the way I think I need to educate my children. This is my age group. This is my stage in life. There's a lot of things that pull people together, and they're fine. They're fine. We gather together. We have children. with We're mothers with young children. That's great. I just want you to know that it's normal. It's natural. It's wired in our DNA. We do that. That's no big deal. You can be a pagan. You can be a Satanist. You can be a Christian. People gather together in groups all the time. There's nothing supernatural about that. But a church that finds this, to be the gravitational pull, why we're together, that's supernatural. When we're different, we're like a mosaic. You know, we're intentionally not the same. We're different stripes and flavors of people, different views on life, different views on political philosophy, different views on education, different views on, different views on a lot of things. But we find our commonality in this, that's supernatural. And that's what the church is to be around. The gravitational pull is to be around Christ. Is that what holds us together? Or is it the common friendships that we had even before coming here? Are the friendships that you have here built upon prior relationships? Or are they built around this truth? Does this truth occupy our conversation? Not every single one, but they all kind of should migrate back towards it. So this is how Jesus has revealed himself to be, is this is what you trust. This is what you hope in. Because if it isn't, then I want you to question referring that that, uh, this really, what would define a Christian would be the cross at the center. Okay, now let's move to part two, the response to this now. And I want you to see the varied responses First, in 3 to 5, look with me at those leaders. These leaders hate Jesus. They do. They hate him. They don't want him as a savior. You see what they say, the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. They wanted to delay it. They didn't get their, they didn't get their desire, of course. They wanted to delay it not during the feast, lest there be an uproar. Now, let me try to explain this a little bit. 
the chief priest, by the way, you notice it's plural because you, it's not like a chief justice where, or you know, one of our Supreme Court justices where it goes to you die. They often turned over rapidly. In fact, there was probably 28 different chief priests in the 100 years prior to Jesus. So they changed over usually as to how well they dealt with the government of Rome. But, but they, they changed. These chief priests, Caiaphas was currently in office running the affairs of the temple. The elders, the elders were really the up-and-coming families of Jerusalem. They were the power players in society. You notice there's no scribes and there's no Pharisees here. Why? Well, they were the teachers of religion. They explained religion. These were the political movers and shakers of the community. Uh, these, were the, these were the politicians. Now, um, they weren't secularists. They weren't anarchists. They, they weren't humanists. They were religious people. They were moralists, but they saw liberation coming from political changes. They saw freedom coming from from military might. They saw the kingdom in earthly terms. They saw the kingdom in temporal terms. They wanted to bring about a change. They wanted better morality in Jerusalem. They just thought to do it externally. They didn't see the deep scar that sin leaves on the soul. They didn't want a savior to deliver them from sin. They wanted a military ruler to deliver them from the hand of Rome. So they didn't want this Jesus and his cross. Weakness and humility means nothing to them. They really do become somewhat representative of a slice of those who identify within Christianity. That the weakness and the humility, we don't want any part of that. We want our political man in office or woman. We want morality back in our schools. We want a stronger military. We want free markets. There can be a lot of saviors out there that would satisfy us and make us feel pretty good. Yeah, If we got these things going, we're in better shape. No, we're not. We're not in better shape. You get religion back in schools, that doesn't make us in better shape. It doesn't make anybody a Christian. The gospel does. Not changing the moral tenor of our, of our society. We've got to understand that because we wouldn't see Jesus any more valuable than they did. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, how many of you were noble? How many of you were wise? How many of you were smart? How many of you were strong? He calls the foolish and the weak to shame the wise and the strong. This weak Savior is what's going to save us because he's, he's saving us from sin and not from the cultural struggles and the national problems that we have. Okay, the second response you see is the disciples. Now you notice in verse 6, the story continues, but the scene changes. They're now at the house of Simon the leper. Okay, where these leaders, they hated Jesus, these disciples, they still didn't really get him. They still really don't understand. Now, you, you see Simon the leper. So who's Simon the leper? I mean, what a, what a tag name. But the, the, um, there's four Simons in the New Testament probably used to differentiate him. Uh, he obviously isn't a leper now because you couldn't host a party as a leper. You're an outcast. You couldn't be with people when you had leprosy. 
And so he was probably healed, most likely healed from Jesus. Tradition holds that he, in fact, is the father of Lazarus and Mary because Jesus stayed at their house in Bethany. And so, so probably their father. Now, it was while they were reclining at the table that this woman, now she kind of comes on the scene, and she anoints Jesus with oil. No big deal there. Remember back in Luke chapter 7, uh, it was customary to anoint your guest with oil. After they've traveled through the dust and the grime and they're in your home, you anoint them with oil. But this is different. She used an incredibly expensive oil from most likely India, pure nard, a year's worth of wages. So thirty, thirty-five thousand $35,000 maybe. And she anointed him with it. This is what caused such a reaction from the disciples. They were indignant. Why such waste? It could have been sold and the money given to the poor. Why'd you waste it on Jesus? You know, you're beginning, they're not getting it. Now, now Jesus rebukes them, tells them not to trouble the, women, the woman, and, and Jesus says, the poor you'll always have with you. Now, let me explain that for a minute. Um, Jesus in no way is advancing a careless attitude towards the poor. What he's saying here is there's a unique time right now that Christ is with them days before his death. You'll never have this again. And so seize the moment. You'll always have the poor. He's quoting Moses in Deuteronomy 15, 11. He says, you'll always have the poor with you. You'll always have, but you won't always have a chance to serve me. He said the same thing when the Pharisees questioned Jesus, why his disciples didn't fast. He says, well, the bridegroom is with them. They don't fast, but they will fast. So there's a unique time here. Now, when we look at these disciples, you just kind of hang your head. It's like, holy mackerel. But I feel for them. A, they care about the poor more than I do. At least, at least they care. And, and they were probably driven by Matthew 24. Jesus had just said, feed the poor. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit those in prison. Hey, Jesus just told us to do these things. Here's a great opportunity. We didn't have to waste it all on you. We could have taken some of it and sold it and given it to the poor. We're just trying to do what you said. I feel sorry for him. I think they loved him. I think they wanted to follow him. But they didn't understand the necessity of Christ suffering for their sins. They didn't understand his infinite glory, his infinite beauty. I feel like we're a lot closer to them than we may feel comfortable saying that we are. This is a reason why we struggle in worship. We struggle with devotion. For many of us, we don't find ourselves easily in the camp of the chief priests and elders. We're probably not looking for other saviors. But we kind of do find ourselves falling in this camp a little bit. We struggle with devotion. Two reasons, I would argue. Because we, we undervalue his unique glory. So Jesus, we read in Colossians chapter 1, that through him and by him and for him, all things have been made, that he has first place in everything. Jesus, before he took on flesh, one with the Father in perfect communion, glorious in every way, and now still ready, comes right hand of Father, receiving the glory and the worship of all the angels of heaven. We'll receive ours. We'll come back in glory and power. We fail to understand the immensity of his glory. We don't think about it that much. It, it doesn't occupy our minds. We're not that impressed. We know, yeah, he's glorious. We don't, we don't go to like a Revelation chapter 1 when Jesus saw, or sorry, when John the apostle saw Jesus. He says, I fell at his feet as though dead. I think you would. 
but right now you don't see him with your physical eyes. And so our appreciation of his glory is muted. That's why we don't devote ourselves to him. Sometimes we're just not that impressed with him. I, I, would, I would make this a point of confession. I, I do for myself. That when I come around to think how little I think of his glory, how his face, how John says his face was like the sun shining in all of its strength. You go stare at the sun for an hour. Shining all of its power. We need to recapture that he is more glorious than we've been thinking about. Your devotion will increase. I have no doubt. But not just do we fail to appreciate his, his glory. I think we fail to appreciate the absolute necessity of his suffering for us. We prayed this, um, a group of us, every uh, Sunday morning at 8 o'clock to 8.30, a number of us in leadership pray for the church before families come in. You all are welcome here. Love to move the prayer time to the sanctuary. You all are welcome. We pray, and we prayed for this to be fresh to you. When you think about the suffering of Christ on the cross, it's old hat. You know the story. You know how it goes down. You know what comes around the third day after he suffers and dies. You know that thing. But I think we lose a tendency to understand the absolute necessity. We need the cross so bad, it's like I need air. We need the cross that bad. And I think for many of us, we've walked in the faith a long time, and our lives have been reformed by God's grace. We have changed. If you would have seen me 35 years ago, you see me today, big change, wiper blade kind of change, big deal. But you know what? It's been so long, it's kind of like, yeah, the cross helped me back then, but I'm doing all, I'm doing all right on my own right now. There's kind of a minimizing of the cross as his grace. It's interesting. His grace almost sometimes, when we take credit for it, blinds us to his grace. And, and, and we forget the need. And we forget the fact that we as humans are often so surprised, as, as R.C. Sproul said once, we're so surprised that God wouldn't love us. And the Bible seems so surprised that God would love us. You know, we've just got things all twisted around. An undervaluing of the absolute necessity of the cross will mitigate your desire to be devoted to him. I, I really am thankful for these disciples. I, I really am. I do want to point out to you, you know, the, the scripture is trustworthy. And you see sometimes these historical markers in scripture, the name Caiaphas or Tiberius in Luke 2. There are historical markers that give um, anthropologists and historians, you know, kind of markers to determine did this really happen or not it's not all theory in other words there are historical markers and of course that would substantiate the the genuine nature of the scriptures but here's what i think even does more these gospel writers throw themselves under the bus can you imagine what an embarrassing thing to say they said why such a waste to anoint christ before his death and it still made it in the pages of the scripture that shows me the genuine nature. If it was fabricated, the writer never throws himself under the bus like this. But I'm thankful that, that we think off in the same way. And look what God did with them. Look what God can do with us. Okay, the third response here is by the woman. An unnamed woman. Um, in, interesting in our day and age, who Jesus raises up to use as our teacher and instructor, 
this unnamed woman? What does she do? She, she, she breaks. Mark's gospel said that she busts the nard open. So, so here's what happens. You get this expensive perfume, probably a family heirloom. She wouldn't have had the means to acquire that kind of unique perfume. And so they put it in a very thin-necked vase. And they put it in a thin-necked vase and they, they often just close it down tight, seal it so that the precious contents won't evaporate. And she doesn't just put a pinhole in it to get a few drips out to anoint him. She busts it and pours it on his head. And according to John's gospel, it even hits his feet, just douses him. She's preparing him for burial. Why does she do this? Why does she use such expensive extravagance? Think about it for a minute. You have a family heirloom, 50 grand? If I had that, I'd be thinking, I could do this, I could do this, I could do this. I mean, think about the hopes that maybe that provided in terms of financial security. She broke it all and anointed him with it. Extravagant. Why? Well, let me submit to you, I think she knew exactly who he was. I think she knew that he was the Messiah. I think she knew that he was the Son of God. I think she knew that he had to die. I think she knew that dying on a cross would make him a criminal, and he would not get a proper burial, and she wanted to give him a proper burial. With the last, the best, the all that she had, she gave it to him. You say, well, how can I import, or how can I find that here? Let me remind you the context here. In 26, 1 and 2, he's already said he's been crucified, or going to be crucified. She happened to believe him. The disciples did not, but she did believe him. And, and you also have to assume is that Jesus wouldn't be holding her up as a model if she didn't know what she was doing. If she was just going off on a whim or going off on a lark, she would not be a, a legitimate model. But not only that, in John's Gospel, you know, in the Gospels we have, uh, the stories are often repeated in different Gospels. And so we'll look at different Gospels to find out how the different author gives details to the story that one author might not give. And so if you go to John's Gospel, you're going to find that he names this unnamed woman, and she's Mary. Well, Mary, and that is the Mary of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And Mary, if you remember, was the one sitting at his feet, listening to him when he taught in their house. Remember, she got in the tangle with her sister because her sister was doing all the work, and yet Jesus said she chose the wisest sort of thing. This Mary was the same woman that saw Jesus raise her brother from the dead and talk to God, and call out a dead man, and say, I'm the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me, though he dies, will never, will always live. That's the Mary. And this Mary would have heard the chief priests and the elders leave after that miracle at the end of John chapter 11, and say, we're going to kill this guy. We've got to eliminate this Jesus. You know, they wanted to establish and maintain political, you know, leadership, and we can't have a guy running around pulling people out of graves. And, and so they, they wanted to kill him. Read the end of John 11. So I think she knew these things. And that's why she did such an extravagant act. She believed that he was. And that brought forth the devotion. And he commends it. It's a beautiful thing. Can you believe Jesus weighing morally on an action? That was beautiful. So she becomes our instructor. How does she instruct you in your devotion? When you think about your devotion to God, how are you instructed by her? How are you challenged by her? How are you convicted by her devotion? I mean, what makes her devotion beautiful? Is it not that she believed in how he revealed himself? 
In other words, is her devotion not beautiful because she believed that he is the Son of God, that the redemptive plan rests upon, that God's whole plan to save his entire creation rests upon Jesus? Does that not make him supremely valuable? I mean, did she not find him just uber-worthy, so worthy that busting the flask from a creation that is already his seems small but large? She gave it all because she believed in him. She saw his worth as being untraceable, immeasurable, beyond anything that we can think or ask. And that led her to such devotion. Her devotion was beautiful because she believed him. You know, Henry Scrugel was a pastor back in, I think in the 16th century, late 16th century, I forget now, or 17th century. But he wrote this and. He wrote, the worth and the excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. Let me, let me say that again. The worth and the excellency of a soul, your soul, your, the excellency and worth of your soul is measured by the object of its love. So what do you love? What do you love supremely? Because that becomes the measurement of how worthy and excellent your soul is. For her, I'd say that she had quite a worthy soul because the object of her love was Jesus Christ. So, so beautiful devotion is marked by belief in Jesus as he reveals himself to be. But secondly, uh, her devotion was beautiful because it was born out of need. It was born out of need. She's a woman. A, a woman in this patriarchal society had no place, had no power, had no potential. And, and you know what? She didn't even have a name. I mean, not have a name. You can't be any more obscure than that. She had no name, and yet she's the one that anoints them. In fact, it makes me think, you know, when you look at women in the Bible, it's incredible. You know who was there at the crucifixion? The strong men, disciples. No, they were gone. They were, they were making quick exit. That was their exodus. The women stayed. This obscure woman had deep need, and she found it fulfilled in a perfect Savior. Now, it, it, not, not to go off rail here for a second, but I am impressed over the role of women in Scripture. I, um, I hold firmly to male leadership in authority in the church, that God has created men and women differently and they have different roles and one of those roles is meted out in terms of leadership in the church. Um, but I'm overwhelmed by the role of women. And after 25 years of ministry, and this isn't to shame you men, so please don't, if you hear me shaming you, you've missed the whole point entirely. I, I, I simply want to say that women are the ones that are reading the books. In fact, publishers will tell you 75% of the readership is all women. They write it to women because they know women want to read. Women fill the Bible studies. Women engage in ministry. Women are the ones. It, it, it's, it's true, women. You, you, Jesus values you greatly. It's incredible. She's our instructor, men. We have a woman teaching us how to worship. And I think we'd be wise to listen. This is why we, we even raised this whole, whole issue of deaconesses. We want to bring biblical balance to the leadership of the church. It's not an authority position to serve, but it's valuing their service as Jesus values it. 
So her worship is beautiful because it's born out of need. She knew she had a need. But, but thirdly, uh, her worship is beautiful because it's born out of abandonment. She gave it all. I mean, her, you know, her, her worship was not measured. It wasn't, it wasn't regulated. It wasn't along the lines of propriety. We can be so textured and, and tortured in what worship. Now, I'm lo- not looking for us to swing from the chandeliers here. <clears throat> we don't have any, thankfully. But, but there's a certain abandonment to the fear of man around her. Even though she bore the, in, the indignant response of the disciples, it didn't slow her down. There's an abandonment. There's a cost. There's a sacrifice There's a willingness to be embarrassed because of her overwhelming love for Christ. That's what devotion looks like. We're too, I can be so measured and I can be so regulated and I can be so controlled in my response that when it comes to Jesus Christ, it doesn't seem to fit. Even John Calvin said this. And if you've ever seen a picture of John Calvin, the reformer of the 16th century, that guy was not a party animal. I mean, he, he could kill you with his look and his nose. But, but here's what he said. He said, Jesus' life is measured, moderate, and tempered, and yet he approves of something so immoderate. 30 grand dumped on him. It's like the widow with the two mites. Shouldn't you keep one? You might get hungry. No, no, no. He's worth it all. It's abandonment. How abandoned is your devotion? I mean, I mean how, how measured and tight are you in your worship of God? I don't just mean, you know, some of us are more melancholic, so our worship's going to look different than the person who's naturally jubilant. So I'm not saying we've got to all look the same, but that abandonment of your soul to him. And not just that, but the extravagance. Her, her devotion is beautiful because it's extravagant. It's over the top. There's a beauty to it. But her devotion is also beautiful because it'll never be forgotten. Look in 13, where he says, Whenever, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told memory of her. It will never be forgotten. Your worship will never be forgotten. Nothing you do for Christ is ever wasted. They made a, t- a fatal mistake. Why'd you waste this? It was not wasted. I'm talking about it today, 2,000 years later. We're still talking about this woman. There was no waste to her worship. Another old preacher said this word about it. The speeches of parliamentary, he was British, orders, the exploits of warriors, the works of poets and painters shall not be mentioned on that day. But the least work that this weakest Christian woman has done for Christ or his members shall be found written in a book of everlasting remembrance. Not a single kind word, deed, not a cup of cold water, a box of ointment shall be omitted from the record. Silver and gold she had none. Rank and power and influence she did not possess, but she loved Christ and confessed him and worked. Her memorial will be found on high. She shall be commended before assembled worlds. As everybody gathers together in that Matthew 21, 31 to 46 passage, everybody's together, she will be commended. She has done a beautiful thing. Cup of cold water, anointment. So we see here this beautiful picture of Jesus revealing himself to us. He has revealed himself to us. 
that he is leading a new exodus, that faith in Christ alone, God passes over our sins and draws us into the people of God, that he's the suffering servant and that he is sovereign in his death. That revelation, how do we respond? We can respond with antagonism, anger, bitterness, hatred. Some do. Some still do. They hate this picture of Jesus. He's so weak and mealy laying down his life. We need more. Others respond Many of you perhaps even still uncertain. You don't fully understand it. You don't really get it. You want Jesus. You want to believe in him, but this death. And then others are devoted to him. Let's just take a minute and silently confess, perhaps, that we haven't walked in devotion to him. Let it be a point of confession. For, for those of you who have never maybe understood it this way, just be comforted in his great love for you. For those of you who are uncertain about your faith, confess your sin. Appeal to him for mercy and grace. He has come to save. If, if you're not certain of your salvation, appeal to him for grace. Ask forgiveness. Ask him to lead you to deep devotion like this woman. And then an elder will close us. In just a moment, thank you.